Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, world's worst coder, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Thor Donovan, editor of our blog and our newsletter. Ryan, you helped to set up today's episode, so refresh me here. Who's our guest and what are we going to be chit-chatting about? So it's uh, Pierre-Etienne Minier. He uh, reached out because of this version control article I wrote. Oh, yes. And uh, he, he's creator, I believe, of, a, uh, of Pijul, which was briefly mentioned in the article. Didn't hear much about it, but somebody was, was interested in that it, it used patch uh, algebra. Cool. This was in the article about you're not using Git, but why? Is, that, is this where we're getting back to? Yeah, it's, it's the version controls that people use other than Git. Okay, gotcha. Well, then without further ado, Pierre, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I did, I, I did read the article and I was super interested in all the, uh, all the options and alternatives. The fact that Pihul was just uh, briefly mentioned uh, was like, okay, yeah, they probably mm-hmm. haven't heard much of it. But this is, this is based on a previous version control system called uh, Darks. Some of the ideas come from Darks, but... At some point, we were using Dark, like me and a colleague, Florent Becker, were using Darks to uh, write a paper about uh, something completely unrelated, but like, like uh, tilings and geometry in computer science. After work, we uh, went out for a beer and started <laughs> discussing version control. And Florent told me that, well, as uh, one of the last uh, remaining maintainer of, of Darks, he could tell me that the algorithm was... Uh, not proper. It was, wasn't a, an actual algorithm because there was a bunch of holes in it, and this explains how it was uh, like why it was so slow in dealing with conflicts. And so we started chatting about, oh, look, we're computer scientists, and so our job is to design algorithms and study their complexity. So, well, this is a job for us. We're also working on a like on a model of distributed computing. So this was like, okay, this is exactly the kind of stuff we should be interested in. And, uh, this is a this, are, this is one of our chances to uh, have a, an impact on something. And so there we, we started working on some bibliography first. We found some arguments about using category theory to solve the problem. And then we started working on it and writing code and code and more code and debugging. And it turned out to be a much bigger project than we uh, first imagined. <laughs> Wow. And so when I, when I saw Ryan mention um, uh, Darks, and yeah, well, there's this new thing coming right, out, right. May, maybe someday, but it doesn't look finished yet and something. <laughs> I reached out and I was like, oh, yeah, but well, you're interested in version control and uh, like probably there's something we could uh, chat about together. Yeah, yeah. You sit down for a beer, you start talking version control and things always go a bit farther than you expected. <laughs> I think that sounds about right. Yeah. Pierre, can you give people just a super short synopsis? We started out talking about, you know, you already as an engineer and stuff like that, but how did you get into this field? Like what got you started down this path, you know, to the point where you're sitting around a bar coming up with your own version control system? How'd you get educated in this world and, and enter into software development? Oh, well, I'm not educated at all. Like really not. Like I don't <laughs> know anything about, about, uh, about software engineering. I'm not an engineer myself. Um, so I, I, well, I started coding when I was a bit young, I guess, on, a, on, an, on an old computer that my uncle left when he went out for uh, some travel. I think well, I was like 12 uh, back then. 
And then I've been coding on and off, uh, and then started studying mathematics and physics. Got into logics, theorem improving, that kind of stuff. And where I'm from, there's a one thing that's that is studied like in France, but uh, I don't think anywhere else in the world, and that's the old camel language. So the old camel language is uh, when you grow up as 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 a Frenchman and uh, go to university to study, you know, general science, like the first two years of you know basic mathematics, computer science, physics, uh, and all that. Like you you get you get told that. Well, this old camel thing, that's really something French and it's really something we should be proud of because there's this uh, legend of, of computing Xavier Leroy. He did everything there and, and he was the first to show the world that you can design a, a functional programming language that's at mm. the same time really fast. But then I, I, I was interested in that and wanted to study computer science, did a PhD in computer science, like theoretical computer science. But then I, yeah, I, I ended up working on a, Theoretical computer science, fundamental, like what people call here fundamental computer science, doesn't mean it's particularly important or useful. It just means it's like the basic things, the foundational, like probably foundational is a better name for that. For that. So yeah, that's uh, that's how I get started. So you know, in in researching the the article, I started off way back in the day on on Visual Source Safe, and it seemed like there were there were natural developments, but visual interested me because it uses patch algebra, right? Can you talk about what that is? Yeah, so patch algebra is a, is a completely different way of talking about version control, of, uh, of thinking about version control. Why? Well, because instead of, 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 of controlling versions, you're actually controlling changes. And that's, a, that's, the, that's completely different. It's actually the dual of versions is changes. So... Instead of just saying, well, this version came after that version, which, which is something that's, well, CBS, RCS, SVN, Git, Mercurial, Fossil, and, and whatnot, like all, all this, this uh, family of systems. So they, they keep controlling versions. They keep in, insisting of, on the version and, this, and the snapshots uh, that come one after the other. In contrast to that, most of the research about parallel computing, about distributed data structures, uh, focuses on uh, changes. So a change, a change is, for example, well, I introduced a line here and deleted the line there. I renamed the file from X to Z. I uh, deleted that file, for example. I introduced a new file. Or that, all that kind of stuff. I solved the conflict. So that's all. That's also super mm-hmm. important. And in contrast to talking only about snapshots and and versions, this gives you much higher flexibility because you can. All, all systems that deal with versions actually show, show versions or comets or uh, snapshots as changes. If you look at, your, at a comet on GitHub, for example, you will never see the actual comet, as in you will never see the actual full entire version. What GitHub will, will show you when you ask about a comet is what it changed compared to, to its parents. So actually, there's a fundamental mismatch in the way people think about version control when they use Git. They, they think, well, everything they see is changes or differences. And then everything they need to reason about when they actually use the tool is uh, versions. So how can you reason about that? Well, we found ways around it, right? right? We, uh, we have all these uh, workflows and, uh, and uh, Git gurus that will tell you what you should and should not do and all that. You have good practices and, and all these things, but fundamentally, what these good practices aim at is 
getting around this fundamental mismatch between thinking about having to think about something you never see. So what, patch, what, what patches and change algebra uh, gives you is that now you can reason about things. So you can, you can say, well, this patch, these two patches are independent, so I can reorder them in, in history. This sounds like a completely useless and uh, unimportant operation, but it's, it's not. What that means is you can actually, for example, uh, you, can, you can take, a, you can take a, a bug fix from a remote and cherry pick it into your branch without any consequences. You will just cherry pick the bug fix and that's it, and it will just work. You won't have to worry about having to merge that branch in, in the future. You won't have to worry about any of that. And if that bug fix turns out to be bad and turns out to be uh, inefficient, for example, and, and you've, you've continued working, well, you can still go back and, and remove just that bug fix without touching any, any of your uh, further work. So this gives you this flexibility that people actually want to reason about. So when you're, when you're using Git, you're constantly rebasing and merging and cherry picking. And, and there's also these, all these commands to deal with, with conflicts, which Git doesn't really model. There's no conflict in, in comments. Like conflicts are just failures to merge, right. and they're never they're never stored in comments. They're just stored in the in the working copy. And so when you fix a conflict, Git doesn't know about it. It just knows that oh here's the fixed version. So this means that if you have to fix the same conflict again in the future, well Git doesn't know about it. It just knows that well there was this, there was this conflict. Well there was these two versions that the user tried to merge, and then there was this version with the conflicts fixed. But it doesn't know how you fix mm. the conflict. So your conflicts might reappear, and you might have to solve them again, or you might, have, you might even have conflicts that just appear out of the blue, and, and then you don't know what these conflicts are about, and you still have to solve them. And in contrast to them, having a, this ability to reorder your changes gives you a possibility to uh, just remove one side of the conflict without touching the other, or model precisely what happens when you uh, change change things. It also forces you to look at all the cases. When you look at all the cases of a merge, you're like, okay, this is a conflict. Well, what are what are all the cases of a conflict? Well, for example, if two people introduce a file with the same name in parallel, it's mm -hmm. a conflict. If I change a, a function's name, and if Alice changes a function's name and Bob at the same time in parallel calls that function, what what should happen? Is that a conflict? Well, Pirola actually doesn't model that. But um, it does model a, a large number of cases mm -hmm. of conflicts. And so this is much easier. It, it will probably save a lot of expensive engineer's time. Listen to season two of Crossing the Enterprise Chasm, hosted by WorkOS founder Michael Greenwich. Learn how top startups move up market and start selling to enterprises with features like single sign-on, directory sync, audit logs, and more. Visit workos.com slash podcast. Make your app enterprise ready today. Yeah, my experience, the merge conflicts are very manual. So it takes a lot of time to actually resolve them. Does uh, visual and the patch algebra, does that help reduce the manual load? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, you have much less conflicts. Mm. Why? Well, because all these artificial conflicts that gets just uh, in advance out of nothing, just because you didn't follow the, the good practices, for example, or you you have long-lived branches for some reason because your uh, job requirements won't like need need that, so you won't have all these conflicts. So there's there's a lot less manual work to do first because there's less problems to to fix, and then 
when you're in the process of uh, solving the conflicts. What happens in, in Pirul is that we keep track in the data structure used to merge the batches. We keep track of uh, who introduced which bytes. It's down to the byte level. It's still super efficient, but uh, we know exactly who introduced which uh, bytes in, in which batch. Right? We can tell, okay, this byte comes from that batch. And so this is a really useful tool to, you know, like if you want to solve conflicts, because you can, you can, while you're solving a conflict, you can know exactly what the sides of the conflict are, and this helps you uh, solve them much. But in my experience, at least, it helps you solve the conflicts much, uh, much easier. So I think this is going to save a lot of time. I was going back in our history of podcasts we recorded, and I remember now we sat down with Arthur Breitman, who is also educated in France, to talk about Tezos mm -hmm. and the blockchain and why he loves OCaml. So you're right. For every uh, yeah. child who was educated in that, something interesting came out of it. A source of national pride and some interesting <laughs> ideas about functional programming. Well, the, the initial version of Rust was also a brilliant OCaml. See, today I learned. So one of the uh, interesting splits I found in the, the version control article was between folks who deal with mostly code and their, their source control and uh, places like uh, video game companies that have large binaries. Does patch algebra apply to the, the binary files as well? Uh, absolutely. Because um, when you're describing changes, when you're describing what happens in the change, you might say things like, oh, uh, Alice today introduced that file. She added the file to the repository. And the file is uh, like two gigabytes in size. And so there's, there's the actual two gigabytes, which uh, Git might store, for example. Well, you, you better use LFS if you do that. But uh, in a classic version control, you might just like add the file to SVN, for example. You might just upload the file, and that's it. In, when you're describing changes, so you, want, you can try to do that in darks, but I don't recommend it for performance reasons. But in Pirul, if you, what, you, what you'll tell, actually, you'll be like, okay, here's a change. Alice introduced uh, two gigabytes. That's what I just said is very short. Uh, and it's just like one file and, and the information is really tiny. It's just like logarithmic in the actual two, two gigabytes. And then there's the two gigabytes themselves. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, uh, using patches, you can separate the contents of the patches from what the patch did. So by modeling the actual operation, you can be like, okay, I can apply this patch without knowing what's in the file. I can just say that I added two gigabytes without telling you what the two gigabytes are. So this sounds like, okay, but like, how can this be useful? Mm -hmm. Well, if, you, if Alice goes on and writes multiple versions of the two gigabyte file, she might just, uh, well, go on and like, do that, upload a few versions. And then when you want to know uh, what the contents of the file, you don't have to download everything. You just have to download, well, Alice added two gigabytes here, then she modified the file, added another gigabyte, mm -hmm. then she compressed stuff and did, did something, and then like there's another uh, pre-gigabytes uh, patch. But then you don't have to download any of that. You just have to download the information that uh, Alice did some stuff. And then... After, after the fact, after you're, you've applied all of Alice's uh, changes, you can just say, okay, here are the two, like the remaining parts of the file that are still alive after all these patches are those bytes. Mm -hmm. And that now I just have to download those bytes. So maybe I'll just end up uh, downloading like one full version of the file or two gigabytes, but I won't download the entire history going through all the versions one by one. 
So, like, I, I believe I've never tested that at scale on an actual uh, video game project, mm. but I believe that this has the potential to uh, uh, save a lot of bandwidth and make things a lot uh, easier for video game studios. And actually, I have a, a project going going on with the authors of uh, Godot. Oh, okay. Yeah. The open open source uh, video game studio, mm -hmm. like a video game editor. So we'll see what uh, goes out of that, but. Uh, it's, we're totally aligned in what we want to do. Uh, we're like fully, both fully open source. So that's uh, that, that's some, that there's something exciting and, and new going on in the video game industry. Although, like I think Godot is really bringing in a, a lot of fresh air. Yeah, I mean the the fully open source projects are are very popular. If you have a, a bug you want to fix, you can just go fix it. And it's been fascinating to see sort of the race going on these days between the closed corporate world that's developing cutting-edge AI and all of the places like Hugging Face and Stable Diffusion and, you know, others that are trying to keep pace with them in an open source way and with a kind of a community of contributors. So very cool. Yeah. So we, we were talking about it doesn't create versions. It seems to me that the, the version system is sort of a, a legacy from when we actually burned disks or released binaries to download and install. With your your background in distributed computing, do you think that this can be a better way to update and maintain all the distributed systems we have now? Yeah, I hope so, at least. So one, one really cool example I can give is uh, MixOS. Mm -hmm. So MixOS is, is, is not really a Linux distribution. It's actually, it's actually a language with a massive standard library containing a lot of packages. You, like, and, and you can use this language to build your own system. So that's the, that's the promise of MixOS. And so while doing so, for example, if, you, if you're maintaining uh, machines in the cloud, you probably want to uh, build, uh, build an image and use like one custom version of, uh, it's called MixPackages, the standard library of MixOS. Uh, and so you want to customize this in one way or another and then uh, release some of your patches to uh, the official central uh, repository for next packages, but then keep some of the others for yourself. So you want you want these multiple in Git, you would do that by uh, having lots of different branches or, or feature branches, which you can uh, push to uh, the central central repository. Then you would work on a, on on another branch, which, which would be the, mer the like the merge of all those patches plus the, the changes that occur in the next packages central repository. Then this quickly becomes a nightmare to maintain because you have to keep rebasing your changes on top of each other and on, on top of what happens in, in next packages. Then when your when your changes get merged to next packages, you get conflicts, and so you have to roll back to uh, some old commits which might not even exist. So I, I believe that maintaining a mul like multiple versions or multiple fixes at the same time to uh, one tool can be much 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 easier using tools like. So there's a, one announcement I can I can make. Uh, this is something I've, I've been working on for a while. So uh, Pirul has its own sort of like GitHub uh, thing for Pirul, which is called the Nest. And so far, it's been not super successful, neither commercially nor uh, I should say industrially, because it's uh, it doesn't scale very well. It's been through a data center fire, uh, if you remember, two years ago in Strasbourg, uh, in the OBH fire. 
And so it's uh, it's using now a replicated architecture, but it's not very satisfactory. Mm. It's uh, written in Rust. It operates in three different data centers, but it's not easy to maintain. So I've been working on a new serverless infrastructure for that, uh, function as a service. So function as a service providers don't give you an actual disk on which you could run Pihul, but uh, I've been able to uh, fake Pihul repositories using uh, Cloudflare's uh, KV, for example. And so this gives uh, infinite scalability and uh, an excellent reliability. So I'm working on that. My prototype is very close to being uh, ready. So I hope I'm, I'll be able to release that in like a few days or, or uh, in the worst case, a few weeks. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We want to shout out someone who came on and helped save a little knowledge from the dustbin of history, answered a question. Today, the lifeboat was awarded to Ratchet, R-A-C-H-I-T, passing objects between fragments. That's the question. It's not really a phrase. It's a question. They're using the built-in navigator drawer. They got fragment menus, and they want to communicate over those fragments passing data from one to another. This is about Android Android fragments. So if you ever wanted to pass objects between Android fragments, get that data moving around, we have an answer for you. And thanks to Ratchet and congrats on your lifeboat badge. Appreciate you sharing some knowledge on Stack Overflow. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always reach us with questions or suggestions, podcast at stackoverflow.com. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. And Thanks for listening. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. It's located at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. Well, I'm Pierre-Etienne Monnier. And uh, you can, you can uh, browse pihu.com or .org if you want to know more about this project. And send a message to uh, pe at pihu.org. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. <laughs>